Put God in charge of your work, and then what you've planned will take place. God made everything with a plan and with a purpose. You know, God takes our lives and our plans personally, and he is involved in our lives, and King Solomon is trying to tell us that we need to trust him rather than trusting ourselves. Sometimes his plans are intricate. Sometimes they go beyond our understanding. So we need to be patiently waiting on God as he completes his plan and his purpose in our life. And if we're patient and if we participate in his plan, then God will ultimately help us to be successful, but it will bring glory to God himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the many truths that are hidden in the precious pages of your word. And I pray today that the plans and the purposes of our hearts will mirror the desire of your will for us. Thank you that each of our lives are in your hands. And I pray that the plans for our lives will always be perfectly aligned with your plan and with your word. And that we, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for uh, joining us on this uh, day in God's house. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to be together in worship. And we're going to rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice in all that it brings. I want to share with you just quickly about today's service. This is the fourth week in our teaching series called The Power of Hope. And we're studying together one chapter in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. It's chapter 29. And the prophecy of Jeremiah that we read throughout the book is really a mixture of literary forms and moods. It, there is prose and there's poetry in this book. There is joy and there is sadness. There's parable, biography, history. Jeremiah was not the only prophet of his day, but he stands out as a rather lonely figure because he has a message from God to his people who are in exile in Babylon, and it is an unpopular message to God's people. In fact, he was actually branded a traitor for giving this message at one point in his life for advocating submission to this pagan uh, uh, empire of Babylon. He was imprisoned. He often feared for his life. And yet Jeremiah never compromised his message from God. Uh, these were dark times in the history of God's people, and God's message was tough for these exiles to hear. But there is a strong streak of hope that runs all the way through this prophecy. And after a period of judgment, after this period of exile, God promises to restore the joy and the prosperity of his people in their homeland. So today is part two of the message we started last week on Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. And if you miss any of the weeks in this series, I encourage you to go on to our podcast. Uh, it, it's on our website or the Redeemer app. And you can listen, you can pick up a printed copy of the message as well. It's available out in the lobby. There also is a note-taking guide in your worship folder for you to use as to assist you in the study of this great uh, chapter together. We're also going to be sharing um, uh, in uh, presenting Bibles to our kids in just a few moments. So they're all here with us this morning, and we're grateful for that uh, as part of this day as well. Let's pray together, shall we? God, you are the one who sees all things. 
You know us when we're lost in the crowd and when we're out of step with the pace of life around us and when we feel alone and rejected. You are the one who hears us. You listen to us when we don't even know what we're saying, when words fall apart and all that escapes our mouths is silence. God, you are the one who is always there for us. So we feel your touch in the breeze today on our skin or the presence in the arms that embrace us or your, uh, and your life in the heart that beats inside of us. And we know that you are present with us even here in this place. Help us to know this in, the, in, in our spirit and in our heart this day and each day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Today's message, Finding the Strength to Forgive, as I mentioned earlier, is the second part of our focus on one verse of Scripture from Jeremiah 29, and it's verse 7. So let me review this key verse. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. I'm not sure of the author, but someone once wrote an article that applies to our message today, and it's called Enemies as Messengers of God's Grace. And here's what it says. If I keep a spiritual perspective and believe Romans 8.28, which tells us we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, if we believe that, then enemies are not really enemies. They are some of the best friends I have. What is sometimes meant by some to hurt me actually helps bring about a work of grace in me that would not take place any other way. My guess is that to most of our ears, that sounds a bit strange. The thought that our enemies can be our best friends and what is sometimes meant to hurt us actually helps bring about a work of grace in us is countercultural to our way of thinking. Here's what I believe this author is trying to say. When someone we think of as an enemy attacks us, God often uses that experience to expose the blind spots that lie hidden in our heart. When friends praise our virtues and praise us, we appreciate their expressions of love, but it is more important that we be told the truth, even when it's difficult to hear. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from the enemy. If our friends can't tell us the truth in love, we will not likely work to become more like Christ. And the blind spots we have will grow further uh, to infect our soul. Now this author goes on to say that there are lessons we must learn in life that can only be learned in the context of adversity and pain and difficulty. God often uses those we might perceive as our enemies to expose the things that otherwise would never have been seen, much less understood or removed from our life. And so what might, we might call an enemy may really be our best friend, 
a helper, a messenger from God, God uh, for our good. And for the way to Christ's likeness is the cross. For each of us, the way to Christ's likeness is the cross. And the navigator that God uses to direct us there are those who sometimes might be thought of as our enemies. This author goes on to say, without people doing what they think will hurt us or destroy us, we would never find the way to being more like Jesus. Enemies are a required part of our becoming holy. And because of that, we must see them as our friends. Well, there's much more to that article, but these excerpts give us the flavor of the whole message that the author is trying to convey. The idea of enemies as friends strikes me as profoundly biblical, especially if we believe in the sovereignty of God over all the circumstances of life. It's not simply enough for us to say that God has a purpose in everything that happens to us, uh, that much is true, but this article suggests that God always has a beneficial purpose, though we often don't see it clearly. So with that in mind, we turn to the very practical question of how we are to respond to people who hurt us and hurt us deeply. Jesus said in Luke 6, 27 and 28, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who hurt you. Easier said than done, isn't it? Especially when we are in the middle of an ugly conflict. In the particular case we're looking at from Jeremiah 29, the Jews had been forcibly deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Many of their leaders had been killed and many had been marched away in shackles. The Babylonians were quite ruthless in their treatment of their enemies and now the Jews were in exile for 70 years, which meant at least for a lot of the older folks, most of them would never return home again. So what does it mean to love people who are trying to ruin everything that we hold dear? How do we pray for somebody whom we despise? How do we seek what's good for people that we wish were dead? How do we survive in a place where everything we believe is ridiculed? Why would we seek someone's prosperity after they did that to us? You see, it all goes back to the question I asked in the first message in this series, what do we do when we don't like the circumstances of our life and it seems as if those circumstances aren't gonna change anytime soon? Here is God's unfolding answer from the first few verses of Jeremiah we've already looked at. You are where you are because I put you there. Chapter 29, verse four. Settle down and make the best of your situation, verses four through six. Seek the good of the city and pray for those who have taken you into exile, verse seven. And in part one of this message last week, we discussed two key questions. Where do our enemies come from? And who are our enemies? We ended part one with these words. Of course, it's easier to talk about all of this abstractly It's much harder to love our enemies on a daily basis. 
Are we to love those who despitefully use us and abuse us and victimize us again and again? It's not easy to do this in any case, but it is much harder to love when we feel deeply and repeatedly violated and our trust has been destroyed. And yet, Jesus' command remains. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. We can't escape that command. This is a key part of our own spiritual journey that leads us from bitterness to forgiveness, and ultimately to freedom. To say it another way, we can't be set free until we set our enemies free to be blessed by God. Today we come to the third and final question, how do we love our enemies? How are we to love our enemies? Let me offer seven suggestions that I believe will move us in the right direction. And these suggestions answer the how question. First, we are to greet them. Greet your enemies. We often overlook this one simple step. One part of loving our enemies is to greet them graciously when we see them. Sometimes, and maybe more often than not, instead of turning the other cheek, we turn the other way. We don't want to say hello to someone who has hurt us. Some of us have grown quite adept at looking the other way or ducking into a room or crossing the street or even using caller ID to keep from getting or greeting those who have hurt us. But as Jesus said, if we only greet our friends, what benefit is that? Do not even sinners greet each other. So one part of loving our enemies is to greet them instead of avoid them. Second, we are to disarm them. That's what we do when we turn the other cheek or when we go the second mile. We disarm them by doing the very thing that they least expect us to do. We do it by speaking well of them when no one expects it. There's an old story about General Robert E. Lee who was once asked his opinion of a fellow officer. And this officer was widely known as one of Lee's greatest detractors. And the general responded that he thought the man was a very fine officer. And one of his aides said, General, quite perplexed, I guess you don't know what he's been saying about you. Oh, yes, I do, replied Lee. But I was asked my opinion of him, not his opinion of me. We disarm our enemy. Third, we are to do good to them. Doing good to our enemies means seeing beyond their pain, seeing beyond the meanness and the, into their humanity. It means seeing them as people who were made in the image of God and understanding that there is something twisted on the inside that causes them to do what they're doing. Doing good means that we do what will promote their healing despite the way they've treated us. The idea is for us to make the first move. We send the email. We pick up the phone, we make the contact, we bridge the gap, we set up the appointment. I read about a businessman who was greatly gifted in sharing Christ with others and he had a knack for saying the right things at the right time. So people were eager uh, to know Jesus after he talked with him and, and someone asked his secret and he said, there are four keys to being used by God to help others. You show up, you hang loose, you trust God and you stay alert. And maybe those four keys work for us as well as we try to help those who have hurt us. But fourth, we are to refuse to speak evil of them. 
That's what Jesus meant when he said, bless those who curse you. It means we choose not to think evil thoughts and we, we, we refuse to speak evil words against those who have wronged us. Proverbs 18.21 has a great deal to say about the power of words. It says the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. You know, every time we open this, our mouth, we speak words of life or death. And I am increasingly impressed with this thought. Forgiveness in many cases is not possible because some of us will not stop talking. And as long as we talk over and over again about how others have hurt us, we will never find the strength to forgive them. And at some point, we have to stop talking and start forgiving. We can criticize the Babylonians in our own life, or we can pray for them. But we can't do both at the same time. And as long as we talk over and over again about how others have hurt us, we will never find the strength to forgive them. And at some point, we have to stop talking and start forgiving. What God said to the exiles applies directly to us. We will never seek the good of our enemies until we stop speaking evil of them. Here's the fifth one. We are to thank God for them. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, we must believe that our enemy is sent by God's design and by God's approval, and our enemy cannot torment us if it wasn't for God's permission. Behind our enemy stands the hand of God, and God would never permit it if he didn't intend for it to bring something good out of it for our life. Maybe we should take a picture of our enemy, you know, frame it, tack it up on the refrigerator, thank God for them each time we look at that picture and pray for them. Sixth, we are to pray for them. When Martin Niemöller, who's a German pastor, was arrested by the Nazis in World War II, he prayed daily for his, from his prison cell for his captors, and other prisoners began asking why he was praying for his enemies. And here's what he said, do you know anyone who needs your prayers more than your enemy? But we may ask, what if we hate the person we're praying for? Tell that to the Lord. You know, God won't be surprised, I guarantee you. Then say something like, Lord, I really don't like this person, but you already know that. I ask that you love this person through me because I can't do it in my own power. I ask you for a love that I don't have and I can't begin to produce. And God will not turn us away when we come with an honest heart, admitting that we need his love to flow through us. Here's the last one, the seventh one, ask God to bless them. Here's a simple way to do that. When faced with someone who has mistreated us, ask God to do for them what we would want God to do for us. Seek the blessing for them that we want God to do for us. Think of it this way, the greater the hurt, the greater the potential blessing that will come when we forgive from the heart and by God's grace bless those who curse us. Let me put it in a broader perspective. Let's suppose you're finding yourself in your own place of exile today, your own Babylon. Maybe you feel forgotten or overlooked or downtrodden or misused or taken for granted. Maybe you don't like where you are in life. Maybe you don't like the people that you have to be around at work or at, even at home. 
If so, join the crowd, because most people feel that way at one time or another, and some of us feel that way a lot of the time. So here's the question. How is God going to reach the people that we consider our enemies? His method has been the same throughout history. God reaches the lost by sending his people to them. But what if we don't want to go? Well, he sends us anyway. That's what God did with Jonah. Read that Old Testament story. That's what he did with the Jewish exiles. He put them in the hands of the people they hated, and the Lord was really saying, you are my missionaries to Babylon. And though I put you there as a punishment, I also intended for you to be a blessing to these captors. It's quite remarkable, really. Uplifting, encouraging that because it means that even when we have really, really messed up in life, when we are suffering badly for our mistakes, God continues to use us. And even God's discipline in our life becomes an opportunity not only for spiritual growth, but for ministry to other people. And I think that's kind of liberating. It's pretty revolutionary. But we'll never enter into that missionary experience until we learn to bless even our enemies. Let me illustrate this principle with a real-life story. A woman wrote about the time that she realized that she needed to forgive her husband, who had left her for a younger woman after 26 years of marriage. She found out later that he had been having an affair for about a a whole year, and to make matters worse, she discovered that some of her friends not only knew about the affair, they were protecting her husband and helping him to cover up his infidelity. And when she wrote down her story, she said that she realized that she had never truly forgiven those friends for what they had done. And then she said this, today I wrote to four people that the Lord brought to my mind that I needed to pray for and ask for a blessing for. I felt the drive to write to them and tell them I had asked God for them to receive a blessing. And at first it was the hardest thing I had ever done but then I started writing the note telling them that I had asked God to give them a special blessing and that I forgave them. I felt a sense of relief. Three of the four people claimed to be Christians, but they had all contributed to my ex's infidelity and adultery. And yet after writing the emails, I felt my burden lifted and I felt at peace. And this is an especially good example because she did not mention their sin to them in the note. She simply wrote to say she was praying for them to receive a blessing from the Lord. How did, she, how did they respond to those notes? Well, we don't know, and maybe it doesn't matter. She did what she needed to do, and it was her obedience that set her free. Let me offer one final word. I stated earlier that our enemy can be a gift from God to us. And though we may not know it and often can't see it, the person who has hurt us so deeply and sometimes um, is sometimes a gift of God to us. And to say that is not to excuse evil. It's not to condone mistreatment. It is to say exactly what Joseph meant when he said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God meant it all for good. You see, our enemies humble us. They bring us to our knees. They reveal our weaknesses. They expose our total need for God. And just as David needed King Saul to pursue him and persecute him and repeatedly attempt to kill him, we need the enemies that God sends into our life. If we didn't need them, God wouldn't send them. 
Therefore, we give thanks to God who knows us best, and we are to love our enemies the best way we can, and often God raises up an enemy to see if we really want to be like Jesus. Remember Jesus had enemies too? They ultimately killed him, but he loved them anyway, and our goal in life is to be more and more like Jesus. In 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon on loving your enemies at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And as he came to the end of his message, he talked about a tree on a hill, and on that tree hung the most influential person who had ever come into this world. In the cross of Christ, the love of God broke through into human history. And then he closed with these words. He said, now we know what love looks like in a world that's filled with hatred and distrust and bitterness and pain and mistreatment and abuse. As the hymn writer said, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. It is a message from God that love is the only way. It's the only way to heaven and it's the only way to live on this earth. And if we believe in Jesus at all, we must say to our enemies, I love you, I don't hate you. And when Jesus walks with us, we will find the strength to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who despitefully use us. So life is not about getting even with our enemies, as the world would have us believe. We ask God to bless them instead. And if we can let go of our anger long enough to pray for those people, we will discover a wonderful benefit. The bottom line is this, when we pray for grace for others, we put ourselves in a position to receive that grace ourselves. So there's a new reason to pray for your enemies. Our blessing depends on their prosperity. That's the message of Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Pray with me. Lord, give us a deep, deep in our heart the assurance that your plans for us are for our good and to give us hope. And when, like the exiles, the circumstances of our life may cause us to wonder if you truly do even care about us, even if you have, are still with us and not have abandoned us, help us to keep on believing And remind us that adversity and even suffering do not mean that you aren't still with us. So inspire us every day to call on you and to pray and to seek you with our whole heart. And may we have the joy of finding you no matter what we're facing. And may we be the people, your people, who choose life and choose hope and choose blessing for our community and for the people in our lives and those around us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.